0: I no longer attempted to conceal my personal means of artificial happiness. But artificial it was, and temporary, as the warmth had long turned to sullen exhaustion by the time my wife opened the door to my sour reek of old gin and empty stomach. I could feel myself sliding, being sloughed off the edges of the meager, sinewy humanity of this place into the shadowy gray that surrounded and permeated it. My blackened, sluggish mind half believed that some day soon I would dissolve in the rain to muddy ditch water and seep to the city's foundations, becoming at last indistinguishable from this miserable place. At home, I felt like a stubborn stain or a filthy patch on the floor. My presence was not welcome. I was humiliated, disgusted by myself every time my wife looked at me. I spent much of every day walking. I didn't go far. In fact, I suspect I walked in circles most days, paying little attention to my surroundings. I walked to settle my mind, to keep its wailing, biting, choking self-pity and despair hypnotized by the rhythmic pounding of my feet. I was too impotent to quiet my painful heart with stillness, so I distracted it with motion. Fear, like love, anger, or revulsion, is not a quality of this early, numbing state of despair. I did not care enough about myself to fear harm from the world. I did not commit suicide because I couldn't be bothered to challenge my body's animalistic cling to life. It was in this grey cloud of weariness and apathy that I began to speak with the beggar who held her vigil by the marble step. I remember cataloging her appearance as if I looked on from a place outside my own senses. Her proportions were strangely abnormal, limbs clustered under skinny, bony body like the nest of some untidy bird. Her flesh was taut and yellowish, clothing slime-coated and meager. I inventoried her repulsiveness— I would be lying if I wrote that some deep part of my being did not itch with the desire to put distance between us. Her eyes bit with cold iron teeth. They made me feel I wore my sins like clothing for her to see. They were sharp and mournful, ferocious and despairing. She exuded an intense, crawling discomfort. I sat on the wet marble steps. "'Listen!' she hissed at the grey square in front of me, "'and it echoed in my head like a thousand snakes. "'He is dead,' I replied. "'She seemed to choke on her own wheezing breath "'as a wretched sob ripped itself free from her sunken chest. "'Listen!' she insisted. "'I said nothing.' I had had nothing to say for days, weeks. I sat defenseless. She began to speak, slowly, haltingly at first, then gaining speed and ferocious energy, words crawling, swarming from her thin, cracked lips like angry insects. They screamed in my ears and bit my skin, piercing and burrowing in soft brown flesh. They dug their way through the clouds of my lethargy and depression, and I cried out in the pain of exposure. She slowed then, as a river that had used its violence to break through a dam and now rushed turbulently forward. I understood little. I caught a cluster of words here and there as they wheeled around my head or slid oozing into my ears like oily water. Sometimes a name, less often a complete sentence, fragments and phrases, groans and tears and exclamations rushed and fell forth. Sometimes she stared at me, piercing my eyes with her gaze, speaking unspoken languages of hatred, anger, desire, lust, confusion— I was glad those soundless words escaped me, for they flayed me alive and filled me with fear. But I stayed. I listened. A pitch somewhere in her sighing, wheezing, wailing voice caused my ears, pain, sharp and persistent. But I stayed. I could feel it. The terror. The suffering. "'the cold and the pain. "'She banished the numbness with blood and violence, "'and I clung to it like a man starving clings to bread. "'When I left her, she mumbled still into the shadows "'that grew in the fading sunlight. "'She showed no sign of noticing my movements, "'and I left without a word. "'Her voice remained in my mind as I walked away, "'or rather the imprint of her voice.' Grey, sticky, and persistent, it clung to my thoughts. It was growing dark when I bought my first glass of cheap, tasteless liquor to forget what I had heard. I returned to the square again and again to sit on the marble step and endure the wild, unfocused ramblings of the beggar woman. Sometimes she sat with the ragged, coverless book in her hands and refused to speak, but usually the torrent of tears and incoherence raged forth to batter pain and awareness back into my miserable life. It was never a conversation. I never understood the seeds of agony that fueled her horrible ranting, but I still felt driven to drown the memory of it. Here my pen hesitates, not because of unwillingness, but because of inadequacy and fear. Communicating memories gives them a terrifying realism and vulnerability, and I am afraid, so afraid, that my ink will convince me of my own madness. But I will continue. Now that the dam has broken, the story rushes on with or without me. In my bleary, distasteful, dehydrated moments of sobriety, I began to see things. Things superimposed upon the world around me like the glaring, unsettling garishness of a tinter's hand on a sepia photograph. I would have blamed it on the cheap gin, but the blessed haze of drunkenness seduced the world back to predictable greyness. It was the sober world that was frightening. The bell tower pinnacle of the church's glorious presence and Cass's marble shelter to the gusting rain, no longer shone white for me in the grayness of the square. Instead, it floresced, unnaturally garish and bright, flickering with a vulgar green, the sickly, chemical phosphorescence of creatures far from the sun. It lit the faces of the parishioners as they scurried past, and gleamed brightly off the great metal hinges of the cathedral door. In the bakery, where I was no longer an employee but remained a customer, the familiar faces jarred against memory. Mrs. Seven O'clock Rise glasses no longer hid her face from me. I could see the bruising under her swollen eyes the unnaturally bright flare of red blood smeared over her bottom lip, the fingerprints, black as soot, that graced the area between her collarbone and the line of her jaw. The rich man still bought the most expensive of sweets for his nymph-like daughter, but now half of each she fed to a great snake that coiled around their clasped hands and up their arms. "'flickering its thin, red tongue in the child's small, white ear. "'A man, smiling, carries his laughing son on his shoulders. "'But for me, the boy has the face of a man "'other than the one who carries him. "'A woman walks her small dog through the rain, "'her hands and arms red with blood to the elbows. "'They appeared everywhere.' The layer of frightening perversion laid itself upon the world upon everything I saw. I found myself drawn to the cathedral square. The children that played there, the empty-eyed pigeons and dark repugnant casts seemed to be the only anchors of familiarity. They did not change. And so the voice of the beggar woman went on and I listened.